sometimes I'm blamed for be pro-Taliban. I'm not pro or against anyone. I just want to be fair. I have seen the suffering of both sides. So I don't need to force myself to be neutral. I am neutral. From the Oslo Forum, welcome to the Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. My guest today is Fatima Gailani, a woman who, for decades, has been a powerful voice for peace in Afghanistan. During the Soviet occupation in the 1980s, she was a spokesperson of the Afghan Mujahideen and their struggle for liberation. In the 2000s, she participated in multiple rounds of key negotiations, including to draft a new constitution and establish a transitional government following the American invasion. Most recently, she was one of four women to make up the Afghan delegation in negotiations with the Taliban. And through it all, she's remained a committed advocate for an inclusive peace in Afghanistan. Fatima Gailani, welcome to the Mediator Studio. Thank you so much. I mean, uh, uh, what you <laughs> just said, I wish I had known this woman. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your establishments, they, they, they speak for the, themselves and you're being far too modest, I'm, I'm sure. Maybe before we get to some of those incredible achievements, can we go back to your childhood? You refer to it as the golden age. And I sense it's the kind of place that you want the country to return to after all these years of civil war, if that were possible. What was it like for you growing up at that time? Well, I had a fantastic childhood. One, because of obviously I come from a very privileged family and I had a very, very comfortable life and a very happy life. But I went to governmental school and there I had classmates from all kinds of people, from a very, very poor to daughter of a doctor, daughter of a businessman, or a daughter of a minister, granddaughter of the king, and myself. But we were just friends. We were a group of young people, and we had good time together. That was the Afghanistan that I ache for, honestly ache for, because it was free-spirited Afghanistan, a place that people used to come from all over the world to see our historical sites and sometimes come for some hashish too. <laughs> uh, but uh, usually for uh, the right reasons. <laughs> uh, so that was a country that I was proud of. Of course, I knew that Afghanistan uh, is a, a poor country, but I knew the, the potential of that country. I was very privileged also uh, that my father... Um, had a household full of the best poets, the best politicians. The best of the best were all around me, and I learned so much yeah. from them. It's part of your political and cultural education. It, it, was, it was really education. It's true that at that time I had taken it for granted because this was my household. But now when I think about it, and even in my achievements, when I do something, I said, oh, I know exactly from whom I learned that. It's so wonderful that you remind us of that time, Fatima, because I think for a young generation today that associates Afghanistan solely as a place of conflict and war, it's important to remind them that it wasn't always like that. It's and not just that Afghanistan of peacetime, no one remembered. Sometimes people forget Afghanistan also have women. Sometimes when I introduce myself, they say, where are you from? I say Afghanistan. No. Are you from Afghanistan? No. Because then I can see that all they have seen from Afghanistan is a group of fighters, whether it was during the fight 
against Soviet Union or today. So I I, I tell them that well I have just shaven. <laughs> So that's why I'm not recognizable. <laughs> so believe me that Afghanistan doesn't even have a female face. It's all mm. men fighters' face, yeah. which is not all we have. Yes. Unfortunately, after that golden age that you describe, as we know, things did descend. And in 1973, there's the coup against King Zahir Shah. In 1979, then the Soviets invade and install a puppet government headed by President Najibullah which has deep personal implications for you, your family. You go into exile. Your father forms a Mujahideen group, NIFA, the National Islamic Front of Afghanistan. And you then become the spokesperson for NIFA and a leading Afghan voice in the Western media. What motivated you to take up that role? If you tell me that I decided to enter the world of politics, it was not so much me. Because uh, I was happy in studying Sufism that I did in Iran and Persian literature. And I was about to do my PhD in, in Cambridge. It was my father who asked me and he told me that what is happening in Jihad Irina, it is a very male operation and it will be very difficult for women. And he told me that it is very difficult for him to open door uh, for women with other people's daughters. It has to be me. And I remember very well that he said that you ha we, I have to put your foot to keep that door ajar, even if it breaks your foot. And did you not then want to do it, really? Were it not for his request to you? Uh, um, we come from a generation and we come from a culture that when a father, a kind father, a father who hardly would ask you for anything, would ask you for something, then it must be very important. But inside my heart, uh, was I sorry that I won't be able to do my PhD? Yes, I was. Because at that time, at that age that I was, nothing was more important than my PhD. But today, I think this was the best thing that happened. How did you use your voice then to convey what was going on in Afghanistan? This is in my nature that when I take a responsibility, I take it very, very seriously. For two reasons. One, because probably I'm selfish that I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to fail. But also because if a person who is a male and does something wrong, usually that person has a name. That so and so failed the Mujahideen, failed the constitution or failed the Red Crescent. But when it comes to the woman, women did it. Women can't do that things. Oh, how could a woman be spokesperson for the Mujahideen? Or oh, a woman, the president of the Red Crescent? Of course, this woman will fail. That's why uh, for us women, not just in Afghanistan, in most countries, we take things seriously, not just for ourselves, but for our old sisters, I suppose. Yeah. You mentioned some of the studies you had done in Tehran. And I understand you also did a master's in Islamic studies while in exile in London. How did that kind of education prepare you later on for the negotiations you would be involved in, particularly with the Taliban? The reason to go to do Islamic jurisprudence and to do Islamic studies, that was for me a necessity. First of all, I come from a religious background, the daughter of the most important religious figure in Afghanistan. If I enter politics, uh, it is expected from me 
that I have a good knowledge of Islam. And secondly, if you become defender of democracy or defender of women's rights and all that, if you don't know enough about your religion, then if the argument is religious argument, then it is very difficult for you to defend yourself because you don't know. All Muslims, all of us, we knew, knew about our rituals, how to pray, how to fast, how to wash and all that. But it, when it comes to the rights, ethics, obligations, and especially rights of women in Islam, one had to study this and take it very seriously. A friend of my father told me that there is a college in London that Sheikh Dr. Zaki Badawi is the is the head of that institution, and I'll take you to, to him, and there is the best place to study. When I went there, Dr. Badawi said that, but we uh, train only imams. I say that I promise you that I will not be an imam, but <laughs> I want to know as much as of an imam. So I started studying there, and then the door opened for other women, and I started having other classmates, female classmates. It was very funny, because most of my classmates were very, very young for them. When I told them that it's my birthday soon and I wanted to invite them home, how old you will become? 40. 40? Oh my God, you're so old. (laughs) (laughs) Then all of a sudden I felt old and (laughs) ancient. But it was funny to have these young people and study together. Mm. And later on when the Taliban took control of the country in in 1996 and banned the education of, of girls and women and you persuaded the Grand Mufti of Egypt to issue a fatwa against the Taliban's ban on the education of women and girls. What did you hope that that would convey? I was very angry. I was extremely angry, especially when on BBC uh, they showed my own school. The school I went 12 years. I was very, very angry. And then I thought that why the Muslim world is silent. And then I remembered that my professor of fiqh, jurisprudence, has become the chief of staff of Sheikh Tantawi of Al-Azhar. So I called him and I said that, please convey my message to Sheikh Tantawi that if this is right, what is happening in Afghanistan, then you should open your mouth and ask all the Muslim countries to close schools for girls. If it is wrong what they are doing, why are you silent? At that time, it was the age of faxes. So meters and meters of fax came. And when the question came, what do you think? I said, it's not important what I think. Here I will read for you the voice of the most prominent person in the Sunni world. And then I read it. Then it made lots of headlines and all that. One of the biggest challenges of being a negotiator can sometimes be getting your own side to agree on a position and also maintaining secrecy when necessary. Shortly after the withdrawal of the Soviet Union, your father receives a call from President Najibullah inviting him to secret talks in Geneva. What happened then and... Can you explain for our listeners why that proposal was so controversial? At that time, any kind of talk with the communists was a taboo. This taboo was not so much an Afghan taboo. It was a Pakistan side and from American side. They would stop anything which would be a conversation between Afghans of two sides. Afghan of the Mujahideen and Afghans of the communist regime. They preferred a country divided. They wanted to have it their own way. And it continued a long time that, unfortunately, some of what's happening today is the result of what happened then. 
Najibullah called me in London. I actually put down the phone on him. <laughs> the first two calls were through a operator, a female operator who said that keep the line. The president wants to talk to you, and I didn't want to talk. The third one, it was himself. Said that please listen to me, please listen to me. You owe it to your country. It shook me. I listened, and then he told me that look, I need to speak uh, with. With your father, because I know that the villages were destroyed by us and the, the Russians. I know. And I owe it to my people to prevent this to happen to the cities. And if Mujahideens seek a military option and enter cities, I'm telling you that the cities will be exactly in the same shape of the villages are. Immediately I was convinced. It was a very strong argument. I went and I spoke with my father and uh, I asked my father that as a Muslim, as an Afghan, do you think it is your obligation to do it? He said, yes, it is. Let's give it a try. So we met in Geneva. As soon as the meeting finished, if I tell you that the door of hell opened upon us, that exactly happened. I mean, uh, I couldn't eat for days because I thought I had put my father in, in trouble. People from our own, or from NIFA, from our organization, they were blaming me. It's all your fault, all your fault. Did they know about the meeting? Very few. I asked my father that whomever he thinks should be should know, I will not interfere, I will not tell anyone. So I don't know how many people knew, but then the whole world knew. Because it somehow leaked out. It was leaked by an Afghan, and it was really, really very troubled time we had. It was the best deal that Afghanistan could get because he wanted to get out of the country and he wanted to give in, but not to a chaos, but to an orderly uh, transfer of power. This is exactly what we needed and we still need. I can hear the the deep regret in your voice at this sort of the frustration of that missed opportunity of what could have been had those talks been successful you know, we're here at the Oslo Forum to reflect on dialogue and negotiations. We've got mediators from all over the world here. Is there a lesson from that experience that you had which you think is relevant for those peacemakers around the world? I think it is very relevant to everybody in the world, but it is especially relevant to Afghans. If there was a competition of missed opportunities, I think we will have the awards for it. We missed so many opportunities. The second opportunity was the Bonn Conference. It was so arrogant and irresponsible that we didn't have Taliban with us. What is a peace settlement if you don't have people that you were in war with? Then you are making peace with whom? In the context of that time, after 9-11-2001, was a real sense of hubris on the Western side of, of victory that the Taliban had been militarily defeated and that there was no need for inclusion no need to have their voices represented so can you talk to us about those conversations that you must have been having at the time at that Bonn conference in 2001 after the invasion when you were clearly advocating for a different approach and what were people saying to you about why that wasn't necessary in Bonn I was not an important part of Bonn conference I was just one of the women and they were people who fought against the Taliban with the Americans so they were very favorite and they would be listened to 
So when I said that why Taliban are not here, everyone was shocked. And I could see at that time they thought Taliban are gone and finished. And for me, it was a question mark that how could people vanish? How could tribes vanish? How could human beings vanish? You could kill one or two or three or whatever number, but then there are the tribes and there are their children and their legacy. Something you said which is very important as haunting Afghans, this arrogance of military win. I am the one. I won. Okay, you won the war. Is the winning the war is the whole thing? It is absolutely not. It is much more difficult to win the peace. And today, I'm telling you, if the whole Afghanistan, through a proper political process, is not forming a future for Afghanistan, it will be very difficult for anything to sustain. And to take us back to that time when you decided to return to Afghanistan after more than 20 years in, in exile to participate in a lawyer jirga, grand council of sorts, to draft a new constitution. How had Afghanistan changed since you had last been home? We returned to Afghanistan in 2002. It took me a good three months to believe that this is the country that I was born and brought up in. I mean, I would look with horrid eyes. I remember that at the tent of Loya Jirga, which is quite high, I was counting houses with my own eyes in the, that one small area. Out of 300 houses I counted, only seven were semi-standing. It was all destroyed. You could see the ugliness of civil war. You could see that people were chased room to room. You could see the bullets room to room. War is ugly, but civil war is the ugliest. You could see that it had destroyed those cities that I tried so hard to rescue, which was flattened. It must have broken your heart to see that. I was so shocked that I didn't have time to grieve. I was so shocked. It took me three months to to accept it. But unfortunately, the human nature is such that the most horrific situation they bring you, you get used to it. I wish we wouldn't get used to it. And the, that sadness and frustration that you must have felt at the time and seeing country that you would love so much devastated by that civil war did you try to channel that energy into work because you were given the opportunity to take a ministerial role in government in 2004 and you chose instead to serve in the afghan red crescent where you became the president and stayed until 2016 i'm telling you something that probably is my mother's doing that for us the five of us, it was very easy to become selfish, spoiled children. Our privileges were not so much in money, but was the respect and love of people. And of course, our life was in- extremely comfortable. It was my mother who would always remind us that all this privilege is to be paid back. And this is how to you serve your, your people. I always felt as if I am in debt. I was all the time in debt towards my 
my people and towards my country. So for me, it was not a matter of choice. This is my duty to do it. And then, as I take my job seriously, I also take pleasure in my work. I make it something that I would love, not just a duty to do from such such time to such such time and then run away from it. It becomes part of my life. It becomes my world. I was a volunteer from the age of 13. My mother was a volunteer. Even my grandmother was a volunteer. Quite frankly, from my mother's side of the family, I hardly knew any woman who was not a volunteer in our Red Crescent. Probably for the elite, it was something that they used to do. But I never even thought about the Red Crescent of 21st century the national society of a country which has been in war for more than 24 years. I never thought that that beautiful garden, that beautiful institution is totally shattered. When I entered, I was overwhelmed. But I said, look, Fatma, you've done it, and you better just carry on. But that was also a gift. I knew exactly what to do. And I had a wonderful team. Those wonderful volunteers existed in the Red Crescent, so I didn't bring them from outside. I just learned how to work with them and how to listen with them, not to decide for them, but decide with them. And I assume that when you took on that job, it gave you the opportunity to not only stay in Kabul, but to see all parts of the country that were being affected by the war, what the US was doing, Perhaps what the Taliban were doing as well. Tell me about what you saw at that time. Actually, before that, I saw a lot of the country when we were promoting the constitution. I traveled, talked to people in districts that you cannot believe. Roads were so bad that it would have body aches for days. So I saw the country like that. But to be the president of the Red Crescent was the time that the bombing of the Taliban was happening. And those bombings were hidden from regular media. Not because they didn't want to see, because it was impossible to reach there. So if there was an explosion inside the cities, in a matter of seconds it was on social media and then on formal media. But when a village was flattened, hardly anyone saw it. But I saw both sides. Sometimes I am blamed for be pro-Taliban. I'm not pro or against anyone. I just want to be fair. I have seen the suffering of both sides. I served the suffering of both sides. I witnessed the suffering of both sides. So I don't need to force myself to be neutral. I am neutral because I've seen that what war can do for no matter which side. So in my opinion, war doesn't have a winner. If we move forward to the period of 2018 when President Trump decides it's time to bring U.S. troops home after what had become America's longest war. And then at the end of 2020, you receive a phone call asking you to become one of four women in a 21-member team to go to Doha for talks with the Taliban on the future of Afghanistan. You had wanted to retire at that point, but you were persuaded somehow to join the Doha talks, which start in September 2020. Talk me through your hesitancy. (laughs) What were you expecting from the negotiations? 
I was very hesitant to go because I was tired. I had just recovered from cancer. My voice was not my own voice. I'm not used to it. Sometimes when I hear the clips of my old voice, I said, whose voice is this? I mean, a, a very feminine voice talking. and it's not <laughs> used, I'm not used to it anymore. And I was still in bed with fever with uh, COVID. So I said no. And then no one took my no uh, for an answer. And then I had my brother, my sister to say that, look, you have been in every important event for Afghanistan. And you try to, this is, this is the last thing that you should do. I went with hope. I went with lots of hope. But while there, I saw lots of things uh, was wrong. First, the Doha <coughs> agreement, we didn't know what was agreed upon. We didn't know much about it. Of what had been agreed between the US and Taliban directly. Yes, exactly, between the uh, Taliban. And, but when I, I, when I saw the, uh, the body language of Taliban, they were just feeling that, who are you people? We have already made, made our deal. But still, I think that it would have been possible if we had gone with better preparation. Have you ever heard of any peace negotiation anywhere in the world that it doesn't have a facilitator and a mediator? And I remember the sentence I used. I said, okay, we have decided to play football with Taliban without a referee. Mm-hmm. So it's exactly like that. So how was the game played then? Without it was every day. Taliban were looking for excuse because they knew that Americans will get out and just kill time. And we gave them the best excuse. Obviously, President Ghani didn't want anything uh, happening in Doha. Uh, on the contrary, he was absolutely sure. majority of people in Afghanistan, among the politicians, were sure the Americans will not get out. But for me, especially with uh, President Biden came, that a, a vice president wanted President Obama to get out of Afghanistan. Now he's the boss, he's the president. Why would he would stay? Of course he will not stay. But him saying that unconditional withdrawal, this was absolutely wrong. The condition had to be a political end for the conflict. At that time it was too late. He had decided and then... No matter what we did, it was done, deal, finished. But we tried, some of us, we tried to to talk with Taliban and ex-president Karzai and Dr. Abdullah Abdullah and some of the leaders, they should come to Doha, they will sign something and the uh, Qatar government had prepared the airplane for them to come to Doha and say goodbye to President Ghani institution would have been saved, the flag would have been saved, that would have been very important, that the army would have been saved. Today the Taliban fighters would have been busy uh, training in the army and the police. Today the banks would have been opened, the embassies would have been opened, life would have been normal in Afghanistan. So if the captain hadn't fled the ship, this disaster wouldn't have happened. The Taliban had promised that after the return of Dr. Abdullah, ex-president Karzai, and the politicians back to Afghanistan, after signings, two weeks, they will not enter Kabul. It means that they would have given two weeks for President Ghani to go, and we would have put our acts together, and some sort of interim period would have appeared. 
yes, the Taliban would have had the upper hand, but it wouldn't have been the way it is today. So the Taliban got the cup, but an empty cup. They can't drink from it, and they cannot water the rest of the country with it. In the end, as we know, the situation played out very differently on the ground. When you were in the midst of those talks, did you feel any particular role being a woman or advantage or, or space that you try to claim to push for these sorts of compromises? I have to, to salute women including myself, the three women, uh, really the women's presence made it very relevant to the world. We were in touch to most uh, parliaments, women and the par- parliamentarians, women, negotiators, women, mediators, all the time. So the torch was burning. And even today, the voice of Afghan women is not sidelined. It's still there where it was. So I see these fantastic women. They are not just now talking about women's issue. They talk about every issue in Afghanistan and, and they are heard. Do those issues include the role of Islam, for example? Yes. No one in Afghanistan is against having a rule of Islam. We are not scared of Islam. We are scared of interpretation of Islam that in the name of Islam is implemented on people not just women, on people. My last trip to Kabul, which was very recently, women don't argue against Islam. Women wants to have the right to study, to work, to have a political participation, and live like others. And when you look at the situation today, as it is now, with the Taliban in such a dominant position, of course, with control over most of the country, What are the specific things that you think that they should be thinking about doing right now? Something extraordinary happened that 24 years it didn't happen. That today the country is in one hand. There is no war in the country. There is insurgency of the Daesh left and right, but it it could be stopped. The whole country is in one hand. After 44 years of the war, we see that the country is at last in one hand. And this one hand has responsibility to bring all the Afghans, regardless of their gender, language, sects in Islam, to show them and to embrace them that this is a country of all of us. When we were in Doha, when the complaints they had and the criticism they had of the Republic, they were absolutely right. But my question is now, that now you have the whole country, you don't have any rival, why don't you do that right thing that you were talking about? What do they say? Some of them say that, just give us time. But unfortunately, time is one thing that we don't have. Because my fear is that if Al-Qaeda gets roots in Afghanistan, it will be very difficult to fight it. Today, it's an alien phenomena in Afghanistan. If the Taliban start a genuine political process for all Afghans, Al-Qaeda, and especially Daesh, will vanish overnight because they will not have a space to stay. I'd like to end with some reflections on your long career. 
it's nearly always been regional and world powers, albeit backing local forces who've shaped the fate of Afghanistan. And yet now it feels like the world has turned its attention elsewhere. How do you grapple with the need for some external support or responsibility against the sort of desire for self-determination and freedom from foreign interference? First of all, I want to say that Afghanistan is a victim of Cold War. And Afghanistan has been the battlefield of regional rivalry. Solutions usually came from outside, decided that, oh, Afghan should need this, and this has to be the remedy. This time, please, whatever happens, it has to happen from within Afghanistan. But it is also responsibility of the world to come and listen to the people of Afghanistan and help the Afghan people to go forward to what they decide is good for them. And, of course, in that, Taliban have the biggest responsibility because they are the government today. When the Afghan people are happy with them, there is no worry the whole world will recognize them. But if the world wants to um, say that I don't want to shoulder the Afghan problem, this is irresponsible because Afghanistan was sacrificed for them. And a peaceful Afghanistan is good for region, the peaceful Afghanistan is good for the world. Daesh don't want to take terrain in Afghanistan for Taliban, they want to use it against the world. So this should not be allowed. And we should all put our hands together and listen to each other and, and put our acts together. And looking back on where you started your career and where you are now, what advice would you give yourself ahead of those, let's say, those very first negotiations in Bonn? I would, uh, not just with Bonn, but also with Doha, that why did you keep quiet? Why didn't you cry for it? Why didn't you put your foot down for it? Why didn't you? We are all to blame. Why, Dr. Abdullah, tell the whole world that I am the head of Peace Council? Why this man is interfering? And me as a negotiator, why didn't I get out and tell the world that the way the peace talk is going, it's not going to succeed. So there are lots of whys and whys. And I I believe that any peace talk, if your heart is not there, it is just a playing with the future of the people. We talked at the start about the Afghanistan of your childhood, which felt peaceful and inclusive, this golden era. Given where Afghanistan is today, are you able to find even if they're small sources of hope and optimism? If it was optimism and hope, then I would have been a crazy woman still doing this. Um, I, I, I believe in goodness of human beings. One day it will come out. I think uh, that we have to give it another try. And we should do anything in our power to prevent another round of armed conflict. Taliban should remember that young and women and minority of Afghanistan are not the same as they were before. They have achieved a lot, they're educated, and they should not be forgotten, and they should not be taken for granted. They're very much there, and they don't vanish. Fatima Kailani, thank you so much for being my guest in the Mediator Studio. Thank you so much, it's my pleasure. 
And that's it for this edition of the Mediator Studio. To get more episodes as they come out, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also drop me a message on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. Mediator Studio is an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our managing editor is Christina Buchold, the series editor is Evie Kressner, and the producer is Chris Gunnis. Big thanks also to the production teams in Geneva and Oslo. I hope you'll be with me for the next edition. Until then, this is Adam Cooper. Thanks for listening.